Chapter thirty one of the Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Isabel came back to Florence, but only after several months, an interval sufficiently replete with incident. It is not, however, during this interval that we are closely concerned with her. Our attention is engaged again on a certain day in the late springtime, shortly after her return to Palazzo Crescentini, and a year from the date of the incidents just narrated. She was alone on this occasion, in one of the smaller of the numerous rooms devoted by Mrs. Touchett to social uses, and there was that in her expression and attitude which would have suggested that she was expecting a visitor. The tall window was open, and though its green shutters were partly drawn, the bright air of the garden had come in through a broad interstice and filled the room with warmth and perfume. Our young woman stood near it for some time, her hands clasped behind her, she gazed abroad with the vagueness of unrest. Too troubled for attention, she moved in a vain circle. Yet it could not be in her thought to catch a glimpse of her visitor before he should pass into the house, since the entrance to the palace was not through the garden, in which stillness and privacy always reigned. She wished rather to forestall his arrival by a process of conjecture, and to judge by the expression of her face this attempt gave her plenty to do. Grave, she found herself, and positively more weighted, as by the experience of the lapse of the year she had spent in seeing the world. She had ranged, she would have said, through space, and surveyed much of mankind, and was therefore now, in her own eyes, a very different person from the frivolous young woman from Albany who had begun to take the measure of Europe on the lawn at Gardencourt a couple of years before. She flattered herself she had harvested wisdom, and learned a great deal more of life than this light-minded creature had even suspected. If her thoughts just now had inclined themselves to retrospect, instead of fluttering their wings nervously about the present, they would have evoked a multitude of interesting pictures. These pictures would have been both landscapes and figure-pieces. The latter, however, would have been the more numerous. With several of the images that might have been projected on such a field, we are already acquainted. There would be, for instance, the conciliatory lily, our heroine's sister and Edmund Ludlow's wife, who had come out from New York to spend five months with her relative. She had left her husband behind her, but had brought her children, to whom Isabel now played with equal munificence and tenderness the part of maiden aunt. Mr. Ludlow, toward the last, had been able to snatch a few weeks from his forensic triumphs, and crossing the ocean with extreme rapidity, had spent a month with the two ladies in Paris before taking his wife home. The little Ludlows had not yet, even from the American point of view, reached the proper tourist age, so that while her sister was with her, Isabel had confined her movements to a narrow circle. Lily and the babies had joined her in Switzerland in the month of July, and they had spent a summer of fine weather in the Alpine Valley, where the flowers were thick in the meadows, and the shade of great chestnuts made a resting place for such upward wanderings as might be undertaken by ladies and children on warm afternoons. They had afterwards reached the French capital, which was worshipped and with costly ceremonies by Lily, but thought of as noisily vacant by Isabel, who in these days made use of her memory of Rome as she might have done, in a hot and crowded room, of a phial of something pungent hidden in her handkerchief. Mrs. Ludlow sacrificed, as I say, to Paris, yet had doubts and wonderments not allayed at that altar and after her husband had joined her, found further chagrin in his failure to throw himself into these speculations. They all had Isabel for subject, but Edmund Ludlow, as he had always done before, 
declined to be surprised or distressed or mystified or elated at anything his sister-in-law might have done or have failed to do mrs ludlow's mental motions were sufficiently various at one moment she thought it would be so natural for that young woman to come home and take a house in new york the rossiters for instance which had an elegant conservatory and was just round the corner from her own at another she couldn't conceal her surprise at the girl's not marrying some member of one of the great aristocracies on the whole as i have said she had fallen from high communion with the probabilities she had taken more satisfaction in isabel's ascension of fortune than if the money had been left to herself it had seemed to her to offer just the proper setting for her sister's slightly meagre but scarce the less eminent figure isabel had developed less however than lily had thought likely development to lily's understanding being somehow mysteriously connected with morning calls and evening parties intellectually doubtless she had made immense strides but she appeared to have achieved few of those social conquests of which mrs ludlow had expected to admire the trophies lily's conception of such achievements was extremely vague but this was exactly what she had expected of isabel to give it form and body isabel could have done as well as she had done in new york and mrs ludlow appealed to her husband to know whether there was any privilege she enjoyed in europe which the society of that city might not offer her we know ourselves that isabel had made conquests whether inferior or not to those she might have effected in her native land it would be a delicate matter to decide and it is not altogether with a feeling of complacency that i again mention that she had not rendered these honourable victories public she had not told her sister the history of lord warburton nor had she given her a hint of mr osmond's state of mind and she had had no better reason for her silence than that she didn't wish to speak it was more romantic to say nothing and drinking deep in secret of romance she was as little disposed to ask poor lily's advice as she would have been to close that rare volume for ever but lily knew nothing of these discriminations and could only pronounce her sister's career a strange anticlimax an impression confirmed by the fact that isabel's silence about mr osmond for instance was in direct proportion to the frequency with which he occupied her thoughts as this happened very often it sometimes appeared to mrs ludlow that she had lost her courage so uncanny a result of so exhilarating an incident as inheriting a fortune was of course perplexing to the cheerful lily it added to her general sense that isabel was not at all like other people our young lady's courage however might have been taken as reaching its height after her relations had gone she could imagine braver things than spending the winter in paris paris had sides by which it so resembled new york paris was like smart neat prose and her close correspondence with madame merle did much to stimulate such flights she had never had a keener sense of freedom of the absolute boldness and wantonness of liberty than when she turned away from the platform at the euston station on one of the last days of november after the departure of the train that was to convey poor lily her husband and her children to their ship at liverpool it had been good for her to regale she was very conscious of that she was very observant as we know of what was good for her and her effort was constantly to find something that was good enough to profit by the present advantage till the latest moment she had made the journey from paris with the unenvied travellers she would have accompanied them to liverpool as well only edmund ludlow had asked her as a favour not to do so it made lily so fidgety and she asked such impossible questions isabel watched the train move away she kissed her hand to the elder of her small nephews a demonstrative child who leaned dangerously far out of the window of the carriage 
and made separation an occasion of violent hilarity, and then she walked back into the foggy London street. The world lay before her. She could do whatever she chose. There was a deep thrill in it all, but for the present her choice was tolerably discreet. She chose simply to walk back from Euston Square to her hotel. The early dusk of a November afternoon had already closed in. The street lamps in the thick brown air looked weak and red. Our heroine was unattended, and Euston Square was a long way from Piccadilly. But Isabel performed the journey with a positive enjoyment of its dangers, and lost her way almost on purpose, in order to get more sensations, so that she was disappointed when an obliging policeman easily set her right again. She was so fond of the spectacle of human life that she enjoyed even the aspect of gathering dusk in the London streets, the moving crowds, the hurrying cabs, the lighted shops, the flaring stalls, the dark, shining dampness of everything. That evening at her hotel she wrote to Madame Merle that she should start in a day or two for Rome. She made her way down to Rome without touching at Florence, having gone first to Venice and then proceeded southward by Ancona. She accomplished this journey without other assistance than that of her servant, for her natural protectors were not now on the ground. Ralph Touchett was spending the winter at Corfu, and Miss Stackpole, in the September previous, had been recalled to America by a telegram from the interviewer. This journal offered its brilliant correspondent a fresher field for her genius than the mouldering cities of Europe, and Henrietta was cheered on her way by a promise from Mr. Bantling that he would soon come over to see her. Isabel wrote to Mrs. Touchett to apologize for not presenting herself just yet in Florence, and her aunt replied characteristically enough. Apologies, Mrs. Touchett intimated, were of no more use to her than bubbles, and she herself never dealt in such articles. One either did the thing or one didn't, and what one would have done belonged to the sphere of the irrelevant, like the idea of a future life or of the origin of things. Her letter was frank, but— a rare case with Mrs. Touchett, not so frank as it pretended. She easily forgave her niece for not stopping at Florence, because she took it for a sign that Gilbert Osmond was less in question there than formerly. She watched, of course, to see if he would now find a pretext for going to Rome, and derived some comfort from learning that he had not been guilty of an absence. Isabel, on her side, had not been a fortnight in Rome before she proposed to Madame Merle that they should make a little pilgrimage to the East. Madame Merle remarked that her friend was restless, but she added that she herself had always been consumed with a desire to visit Athens and Constantinople. The two ladies accordingly embarked on this expedition, and spent three months in Greece, in Turkey, in Egypt. Isabel found much to interest her in these countries, though Madame Merle continued to remark that even among the most classic sights, the scenes most calculated to suggest repose and reflection, a certain incoherence prevailed in her. Isabel travelled rapidly and recklessly. She was like a thirsty person draining cup after cup. Madame Merle, meanwhile, as lady-in-waiting to a princess circulating incognita, panted a little in her rear. It was on Isabel's invitation she had come, and she imparted all due dignity to the girl's uncountenanced state. She played her part with the tact that might have been expected of her, effacing herself and accepting the position of a companion whose expenses were profusely paid. The situation, however, had no hardships, and people who met this reserved, though striking, pair on their travels would not have been able to tell you which was patroness and which client. To say that Madame Merle improved on acquaintance 
states meagerly the impression she made on her friend, who had found her from the first so ample and so easy. At the end of an intimacy of three months, Isabel felt she knew her better, her character had revealed itself, and the admirable woman had also at last redeemed her promise of relating her history from her own point of view, a consummation the more desirable as Isabel had already heard it related from the point of view of others. This history was so sad a one, in so far as it concerned the late Monsieur Merle, a positive adventurer, she might say, though originally so plausible, who had taken advantage years before of her youth, and of an inexperience in which doubtless those who knew her only now would find it difficult to believe. It abounded so in startling and lamentable incidents that her companion wondered a person so éprouvé could have kept so much of her freshness, her interest in life. Into this freshness of Madame Merle she obtained a considerable insight. She seemed to see it as professional, as slightly mechanical, carried about in its case like the fiddle of the virtuoso, or blanketed and bridled like the favourite of the jockey. She liked her as much as ever, but there was a corner of the curtain that never was lifted. It was as if she had remained, after all, something of a public performer, condemned to emerge only in character and in costume. She had once said that she came from a distance, that she belonged to the old, old world, and Isabel never lost the impression that she was the product of a different moral or social clime from her own, that she had grown up under other stars. She believed, then, that at bottom she had a different morality. Of course, the morality of civilized persons has always much in common, but our young woman had a sense in her of values gone wrong, or, as they said at the shops, marked down. She considered, with the presumption of youth, that a morality differing from her own must be inferior to it, and this conviction was an aid to detecting an occasional flash of cruelty, an occasional lapse from candour, in the conversation of a person who had raised delicate kindness to an art, and whose pride was too high for the narrow ways of deception. Her conception of human motives might, in certain lights, have been acquired at the court of some kingdom in decadence, and there were several in her list of which our heroine had not even heard. She had not heard of everything, that was very plain, and there were evidently things in the world of which it was not advantageous to hear. She had once or twice had a positive scare, since it so affected her to have to exclaim of her friend, "'Heaven forgive her! She doesn't understand me!' Absurd as it may seem, this discovery operated as a shock, left her with a vague dismay, in which there was even an element of foreboding. The dismay, of course, subsided, in the light of some sudden proof of Madame Merle's remarkable intelligence, but it stood for a high-water mark in the ebb and flow of confidence. Madame Merle had once declared her belief that when a friendship ceases to grow, it immediately begins to decline, there being no point of equilibrium between liking more and liking less. A stationary affection, in other words, was impossible. It must move one way or the other. However that might be, the girl had in these days a thousand uses for her sense of the romantic, which was more active than it had ever been. I do not allude to the impulse it received as she gazed at the pyramids in the course of an excursion from Cairo, or as she stood among the broken columns of the Acropolis and fixed her eyes upon the point designated to her as the Strait of Salamis, deep and memorable as these emotions had remained. She came back by the last of March from Egypt and Greece, and made another stay in Rome. A few days after her arrival, Gilbert Osmond descended from Florence, and remained three weeks during which the fact of her being with his old friend Madame Merle, in whose house she had gone to lodge, 
made it virtually inevitable that he should see her every day. When the last of April came, she wrote to Mrs. Touchett that she should now rejoice to accept an invitation given long before, and went to pay a visit at Palazzo Crescentini, Madame Merle on this occasion remaining in Rome. She found her aunt alone, her cousin was still at Corfu. Ralph, however, was expected in Florence from day to day, and Isabel, who had not seen him for upwards of a year, was prepared to give him the most affectionate welcome. End of chapter 31